everybody welcome to the 86th edition of the holy backboard podcast i'm dustin here in rip city and i got my man sage chilling man today has been a very weird day for your boy uh some some asshole almost well actually did run me off the road on the highway and uh if you happen to be listening i'm all right my fingers fucked up and my chest hurts but other than that i'm cool so is this like your version of the flu game, but for podcasts? What, what my fingers all fucked up because of some asshole. I, I merged to the left lane to let this person on the freeway, and then they we happened to be parallel to each other, and then they didn't look and uh, crossed into my lane, and I just reversed, and then I fishtailed for like what seemed like forever, but was probably ten seconds. So whoever that was, fuck you. Well, it's good that you're safe and sound. Um, I did, you know, text you and was like, are you all right? And I waited the appropriate amount before I was like, hey, are we podcasting tonight or what? Unless I like went to the hospital or something. We were going to podcast tonight regardless. But uh, after I talked to my mom and she took me out to some dope Vietnamese place and, you know, I'm winding down with some Vietnamese tea. I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm ready to talk about. The wonderful team that you and I both are obsessed with, the Portland Trailblazers. And so as we've been keeping up over the course of the summer, it's been a very quiet summer in, in Grip City. But they did make a little bit of news earlier this week when they signed former first round pick out of Kentucky, Archie Goodwin, to a training camp contract. Portland does have a spot open on the roster, and they can't even... Add in a couple more guys because of those two-way contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did sign, uh, what was it, C- not C.J. Watson. It was another C.J. Um, I mean, it's just... I mean, they're not making the team. But now it's bugging me. Who, who did... <laughs> C.J. Wilcox. I knew it was a C.J. C.J. Wilcox, former Washington Husky. He is one of the two-way contract players. Um, Archie Goodwin really is known for being a one and done at Kentucky. He bolted after his first year and the biggest, not takeaway, but the most remembrance I have of Archie Goodwin is seeing him at the trailblazers practice facility during the pre-draft workouts. I was working for the team at the time during doing the social media. So I got a chance to interview him really quickly. Um, obviously he was 19 years old, super, super shy so there's really no takeaways as into who he is as a player. I mean, I interact with him with probably less than a minute or two. So, <laughs> but from all accounts, you know, he's an extremely athletic player. That's 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 the gem that that you look at it when you say Archie Goodwin. He is athletic. He he he. Uh, I think they even signed him to a two year deal. The Pel- remember when the Pelicans were dealing with all those point guard problems when uh. Uh, Lauren Holiday had the brain surgery and then the child, so the Pelicans were looking for a backup guard to go along with Tim Frazier. So they brought him in for a two-year deal. I got to see him a little bit. The one thing, he is very athletic, but when he gets the... He cannot shoot. He cannot shoot a lick. Another thing about him, when he gets the ball, all he does is puts his head down and drive to the hoop. Doesn't look... It's no cut and just straight at the rim. He doesn't pass it. You know, there's going to be times where he makes some highlight plays because people aren't there, but he puts his heads down and rushes. I don't so he's think definitely not, he's, he's definitely not, not a, a three point shooter. No, all. absolutely not. I, it, it was really bad. He was a really bad shooter. All he is is an athlete that can dunk, but has no moves to get any separation except using that straight line speed he doesn't seem like a, a a trailblazers guy when you think of like versatility and shooting and all of the things blazer the, the team looks for in guys he's just an athlete yeah i mean you mentioned he's a 23.6 percent career shooter from downtown uh 42.9 percent from the floor although in 22 games Towards the back half of the season with the Brooklyn Nets in 15 minutes of action, he did shoot 
almost 56% from the field uh, and got about almost eight points. So, But, you know, when you give someone opportunities, their stats are going to look better than they, he actually is. That's true. All I'm saying is he took five shots, made about three of them. That's not super, I wouldn't say chucker, chuckery. No, 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 no. Of no. Him. no, he's so just a slashing guard. Yeah, he is 23, and Portland has taken on players before who might not have the greatest track record when it comes to shooting or may have not lived up to the hype, so to speak. Um, as I mentioned, he was drafted by the Phoenix Suns. They took him 29th overall in the 2013 NBA draft, just two spots ahead of where Cleveland selected Alan Crabb, and Portland made that move to get Crabb. I do recall it being quite a shock when the Suns cut Goodwin after the, the 2016 season. Uh, he was coming off his best performance, averaging nine points, shooting, excuse me, shooting 42% from the field. I know that is not great, but he did hit a game winner. He was playing a lot of meaningful minutes for those Suns, even though they were completely out of playoff intention for a young player in his third year. He was kind of looked as that next guy. And this was right around the time they were kind of, you didn't know what to make of the Suns. They had the Morris brothers, then they broke them up. Then they broke up broke up both of them. They dealt, dealt Marcus first, then they had to deal with Marquis. They brought in, didn't they have to ship off Gortat? They traded uh, Goran. Goran, they traded Isaiah Thomas. I mean, they brought in Brandon Knight. Eric, Eric Bledsoe couldn't stay healthy. They drafted Devin Booker um, in 2015. So Signed Tyson Chandler. Signed Tyson Chandler, tried to go after Marcus Aldridge. So there was a lot of ups and downs going on with the Phoenix Suns. And it seems like Goodwin, for better or worse, was really fighting with TJ Warren for that that really that, that next two or three, the, the two or three position. And it, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. They cut him. They let him go. As you mentioned, the Pelicans brought him up. He only played three games for New Orleans, and he only played um, 22 for the, the Brooklyn Nets. Excuse me. So that's, uh, you that, mentioned that's, a guy I wanted to talk about, TJ yeah. Warren. He doesn't have I, a role at all because they got just he got he, Justin Jackson is going to have that role. What would it take for Phoenix Wait, to give Justin up? Justin Jackson went to Sacramento. Oh, shit. The other one. The more athletic one. Uh, JJ, f he played for uh, Kansas. I almost, Josh Jackson. I almost died today. I can, I can forget which JJ it is. Um, Josh, Josh Jackson. Josh Jackson. He, he doesn't have a role now. What would it take for us to get TJ Warren? We need a wing. What would it take? I would... I would deal a protected first for him in a second. He is a, uh, a restricted free agent this year, but that that's value for this year. That one... One one quick quick note before we, we move on. I was looking at the age on basketballreference.com. He did play three games for the Pelicans, but only 12 for the Brooklyn Nets. So he only played 15 games last year. But moving on to, to TJ Warren... With Alan Crabb out of the picture, we definitely need a backup, too. Like, we need a th solid three-guard rotation, and I am not sold on Evan Turner being that third guard. He's more ball-dominant than I anticipated. I thought he'd be able to manufacture some offense with his vision, but he really needs the ball in his hands a lot to either decide to score or make that pass. And then, obviously, we don't have that. that we don't have any instant offense off the bench anymore. I mean, TJ, TJ would hit those mid-ranges for us, play like a 2000s Blazers-esque guy off the bench. Um, Bonzi Wells? I, Bonzi, I, I was, so I, I was thinking about players that are in that type of... They don't have a role. I was trying to think of players. I'm going to name three. Rob Covington, TJ Warren, Rodney Hood, because I think that uh, Jazz Rookie is for real. Out of those three, who would you want the most? We have all three? Shit. Those are all three guys that would come in and produce in a heartbeat. I think Rodney Hood is the best player of all three. But he's very inconsistent. I still think he's the best player of all three. I think I think he's going to have a, a nice year in Utah with Hayward um, out in Boston. 
Hood is a guy who I, I love lefties too. Just their stroke is so just pure. And I know they all like seems like every lefty has that same stroke, whether it was from Damon Stoudemire, you know, to Michael Red to to Rodney Hood. They all just have that picture perfect textbook jump shot. And Hood's also got some ups like this kid still has a lot of upside. And I think once he puts it all together, I think you're going to get a player. He's not going to be an all star player, but he's going to be one of those guys who is like, oh, is he underrated? Like because we don't talk about him enough. Like he might come into that that Mike Conley mold. Um, especially this year when he's going to see increased usage for a Utah team that really is going to really lean on him to provide that offense that that they're missing from from Gordon Hayward. But if I had to rank him, I would say Hood, probably Covington 2, and, and Warren 3. And Warren 3 only because he hasn't shown an ability to produce a lot for a struggling Suns team. And you can say that at least Covington on an equally poor team in Philadelphia, he's hit big shots. I mean, he knocked the Blazers out of a game last year in Philadelphia with back-to-back big triples. He is probably the best shooter from downtown of the bunch. And he's the biggest. And he's the best defender because I've seen Rodney Hood play basketball. That dude could give less than a fuck about playing defense. And TJ Warren, I'm still iffy about his defense as well. So Rob Cub would be my number one, TJ two, and then Rodney Hood because we need some defense on this fucking team and Rodney Hood is not bringing it at all. But he would have the highest of highs if he got his head on straight and, you know, was more consistent with it. Man, you're putting Hood at three? Do I know you anymore? I, I did I I had a man crush on him. Then I realized that defense matters. <laughs> he's he's better than TJ Warren though. I can see putting Covington ahead of him, but you know I had a man crush on TJ Warren last year. It's the shit don't stop. The shit don't stop. I can't believe the preseason is right around the corner. We actually open October third, three weeks to the day. Blazer basketball will be back even sooner if you factor in. FanFest, as I mentioned on last podcast, I went ahead, had to cop those half-season tickets. The package I picked did not include opening night. So, of course, your boy had to pick up opening night tickets. We've got myself, Olga Bears, Matt, you, my mom, my dad, whole fucking squad is going to be What about in your Portland. G-Pop? What about your grandpa? Uh, I think... Uh, the game passed him by a little bit, so I think he'll be watching it from home. Yeah, so I, I don't even know what I'm going to wear for that game. I, do I wear, I, I, like... I would be cool with you rocking the 80 jersey, but a blazer hat. Head, yeah. You're at the stage of your fandom where you are one of those dudes in the stands wearing both teams. Like, you've all seen the dude <laughs> with the half jersey. Do you think I'll be on TV if I do that? Uh, we'll be up on those nosebleeds, so I, I don't know about that, but... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm excited for that shit, man. Real basketball I, is coming up. Like, the, the, the TBT was like, holy shit, I'm actually watching real basketball that matters. Not the big three, not... That was meaningful basketball. It, it was different from my eyes as, like, a guy who watches it in 2017, but that was real basketball. So I'm excited for that shit, man. It was. I, I cannot. I, it feels like the summer always takes a long time until you get to September. And then you've got all of the, the previews that come out. You know, all of the publications say who they think is going to come out of the East, who's going to come out of the West, who will surprise. They give out their, you know, the preseason awards and the NBA ranks. Sage, what are your thoughts on these rankings that publications like Slam Sports Illustrated and ESPN, they roll out every offseason just to stir up conversation. Do you put any merit at all into those rankings? I don't for the teams that I watch. Like, if they're talking about the Portland Trailblazers, I already know I know more than them, so I don't even pay attention. I'll look at it just to be, like, part of culture, but I don't take any of that into what's going to happen in the year because there's no way that they watched as much film as you or I or any Trailblazer fan that like fucks with them heavy. There's no way they watched them. They might have watched the game where Nurk got a triple-double or the game against Denver, but it's a whole season, not a few games where they just happened to see it because they were on national TV. 
But in particular, these NBA player ranks where they're ranking individual players. I mean, we've seen supposedly Carmelo Anthony is up in arms over being ranked 64th, the lowest of his career on ESPN. Uh, Lonzo Ball ahead of him or some shit. So Slam had Lonzo in in the 45 to 50 range, which is absurd. Dude hasn't um, this, played a minute yet. He's not LeBron or Tim Duncan either. Like those guys were were players. If they did the NBA rank back then, yes, you you feel extremely confident putting them in the top fifty. Lonzo Ball's coming off a game against Kentucky where De'Aaron Fox fucking took his ass to the rack every and, time. And there's a world where that shit happens every single game because they this saw is, that film. This is, this is De'Aaron Fox, a rookie in the NBA. Hmm. That's not even Steph, Dame. Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook. Could you imagine Pat Beverly on him after he saw that film against Kentucky? Get the fuck out of here. There is a world where Lonzo Ball flops very hard because there's film out there already of him looking subpar. Of course, there's games where he looks fantastic, but that last one leave a pretty shitty taste in your mouth if you were a Lonzo fan. And I get it. He won Summer League MVP, but I've also seen Quintel Woods dominate the Summer League. I've also seen Jared Bayless win Summer League MVP and Nicholas Batum looking like a lost puppy out there, only to end up starting all 82 games for a 54-win Blazer team. What was it? Eight years ago. So Summer League, it's all fine and dandy, but you have to take it at face value. You have to take it with a grain of salt. And to rank Alonzo Ball in the top 50 i mean is ridiculous i mean i I even struggle with him being above mellow i'm not the biggest mellow fan i think he's a one-dimensional player but right now this season he is going to be a better player than lonzo ball and yeah i mean rookies suck and uh mellow at least has had years where he's been an elite or very good scorer in the league and that's something lonzo hasn't proven shit so that's a little premature for people to uh assume that he's gonna take the league by storm and if you're looking at Blazer rankings, uh, Sports Illustrated had Yusuf Nurkic at 69. Yeah. And, yeah, nice. <laughs> and CJ McCollum, I think, cracked the top 35. I think he was, was he either 33, 31, maybe 37. He, he was in that in that range, so pretty high up. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where Damian Lillard is ranked. So when we're talking about the NBA ranks, I really only care about the top 10 top 15 because i think for the most part that's where you kind of put the bullshit aside i think a lot of these rankings are are there to get your page views up to get people talking about it like we are i I hate that we're buying into it but we're only giving them a couple of minutes on uh, on our show i like to see the top 10 you know do the blazers have representation there um it just kind of gives validity to how we view dame it's kind of how i always grew up with clyde drexler you know, it took a few years, but he finally was voted an all-star by the fans. Um, so in a way, this stuff does matter a bit because fans are reading it. They see these guys in there. And it, and it does, you know, it slowly but surely in incremental places, it does feed into the overall hype of a player. And whether that player is able to live up to it or not is up to that player. But it still helps when you're, maybe it's a 50-50 judgment call. If you have that clout it's likely you're going to get that call. And Dame is starting to work his way up those ranks. He's hit the clutch shots. He does the wrap on the side. He's got an incredible shoe line and he's very personable on social. So despite playing in a small market in Portland, he's still known worldwide. And that's important for your franchise player to be known worldwide. It's tough for a team except, except for the Oh four Pistons to win a championship. If you don't have that, that guy that's really known. Mm. And I mean, Dame was a cover athlete for NBA Live and is now like seriously involved in NBA 2K. Like he, he's got the rep and I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not going to trust the major media to tell me how a guy I've watched 82 games a year is in like the the scheme of the NBA. So speaking of, of 2K18, I think one, they do a phenomenal job of marketing the product, a product that is essentially the same year in and year out aside from roster changes but dame is featured in the new 2k the neighborhood spot along with bill walton i read an article um not an article it's more of a recap from from rip city project and they pointed out just the the amount of detail that goes into that spot it, it the record shop is called dame dalla obviously an homage to his name 
Um, it says like soul, uh, funk, and like hip hop or something like that below it, which are kind of the, the three types of music that, that he puts out there. And on the leaderboard, kind of where you put like, oh, we're having a sale today. What well, here's our special? It says like Rip City Hits. I mean, just the, the amount of detail that goes into that spot is great. And I, I love seeing Dame with the 2K stuff. I don't want to ever see him be a cover boy because there's been kind of that, that Madden curse lately on 2K. So, you know, just stay away from the covers, but, you know, keep doing your business in the game. It's also rad to see Bill Walton. I mean, eating a melon or whatever. Was he even melon? Was it cabbage or melon? I don't, I don't know. I probably should know, but nah, I have no idea. I, I know he was eating a vegetable. So did you pre-order that shit yet? Goddamn right I did. You know I did, dog. You uh, are their target fucking audience. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it last year, uh, last podcast. Of course I am, bro. I mean, you know you're obsessed when you like take your stats and then compare it to the the actual real NBA players, like I did today, checking to see like how my my player would rank in the top scorers of the league and the top assist men of the league. So yeah, I, I fuck with that shit so heavy. What's the first thing you do when you get 2K? Since I already did my face scan, which makes me look like the biggest dickhead in the world, I just check out the rosters. I just check out, like, ooh, what's Al Farouk Amino rated? Or, you know, I check out all the teams, give it a little once-over, and then I start playing my career. Um, do you ever do anything in franchise mode? That's, like, the thing I fuck with the least. I'm a my career, my team, and then play now type of guy. I'm excited for it, man. 2K Friday, bro. I'm 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 ready for it, man. Wait, it comes out this Friday? Uh, the early release comes out this Friday. So we're not going to see you all weekend, are we? <laughs> I mean, if if some Blazer news happens, I'll be there to help recap it. But I I wouldn't try and hit me up to do anything like active that that weekend. I mean, that might be just a waste of everybody's time. All right, I'll text you. If I don't get a response, I'm going to find Mama Sage and have her go knocking on your door. Oh, no, I always respond. I'm not a dickhead. I always respond. Or at least I give you a thumbs up if I'm, I'm, if I'm good, you know. All right, before we jump into this TBT, I think we should hit up our, our fan question because I think it might stir up a little bit of debate. So, um, Peter, if I mispronounce your last name, apologies for that. But I believe it's Peter Lell. Uh, he goes by the handle at the Blazers fan. He wants to know, are there numbers with the Blazers that you equate with a certain player, not including retired players? Brandon Roy's number seven isn't in the rafters. Um, so what are your thoughts on someone else coming in and wearing number seven? Should they retire it? And overall, kind of, do you equate a number with a certain player that's not a I wouldn't say that's like a famous player from your franchise, maybe like a role player. I mean, the only number that I really equate with the Blazer is the le- uh, the number O or the letter O. But uh, I mean, like, I know fans got really pissed off at Anthony Morrow when he decided to be the uh, number one when he got traded to uh, the Bulls. So people definitely take that stuff into consideration. I personally don't, though. I don't either. Uh, Mo Williams took a lot of shit when he signed here in the in the summer of 2013 by wearing the number seven, a number he had worn previously in, in in prior stops around the NBA. Everyone was up in arms that he was taking Brandon Roy's number, and, and finally he was just like, "Fuck it, it's not worth it. I'm gonna go." I think he ended up going with 25. Um, Steve Blake did, I thought, a really kind gesture after Jerome Kersey passed in 2015. He was wearing 25 at the time. He gave that number up. So for kind of a nerd like me, I can equate almost any number with a former Blazer player, whether it's famous or role player or obscure. For instance, number 14 always is going to remind me of Robert Pack. Uh, 25, always Jerome Kersey. 44, Brian Grant. You know, 50, Zach Randolph. 52, Greg Oden. I mean, we can go up and down the list. Uh, of players and like you said right now damian zero cj3 you know and 25 is it's not just limited to cursey for me either i mean he's obviously the player who is going to be remembered most but my favorite blazer during the rise with us era was travis outlaw of course you know he wore 25 so yeah i definitely have 
um, feelings towards players and I can remember them and that's those are the kind of thoughts, the memories of when they played whenever I hear a certain number because I can just equate that to that player. In terms of Brandon Roy, I have a hard time saying yes, his number should be retired. I know a lot of fans fell in love with the Trailblazers because of Brandon. Uh, he was able to lead a team to get us to the playoffs after a six-year absence. Um, and this was a franchise that had made it, what, 18, 20-plus years straight making the playoffs. And all of a sudden, there was the Jailblazers. We bottomed out. We're the worst in the league for a while. And then finally made it back into somewhat of a relevance. Had he played more for Portland, I don't think there would be any question that you retire his number. I know the counter argument is that, well, Bill Walton is retired and he only played, what, three or four years in Portland. Well, Bill Walton was also the MVP of the 78 season and led us to the championship in 77 and is, I think, easily a top 50 player of all time. Brandon Roy, at his peak, was second-team All-NBA. That's not a knock on him. Those are just the facts. He was a very, very good player for us, one of the most clutch Blazers in history, and some of the best memories I have as a fan were watching him hit that shot against Houston, um, that comeback against Dallas in the 2011 playoffs, and just his overall knack for coming up clutch. However, he, he just didn't have a, a long enough track record. I don't know when the time is going to pass where someone coming in is going to get number seven. Um, apparently, six years isn't, isn't long enough, but I think it'll come sooner rather than later. I don't think they're going to retire his number. Portland is already behind the eight ball a little bit when it comes to retiring numbers because we went so gung-ho with it. Yeah, didn't um, this entire 77 team get or I think a good six, portion of it? Six players of the 77 team have their number retired, along with um, Jeff Petrie, Clyde Drexler, and Terry Porter. I mean, the last jersey retirement they did was um, a duel, number 30, for Terry Porter and Bobby Gross during the the 0809 season. So it's been eight years. Um, however, Portland is a small market team. I'm glad that six players from the 77 team have a number retired because as great as the 2000 team was, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and the early 90s Blazers, that was the team that got shit done. That's the team that has that yellow patch on the back of our jersey that denotes that we've won a championship. That's the team that held the Larry O'Brien trophy. So it was Walton, Mo Lucas, Dave Twardzik, Bobby Gross. Oh, and then uh, Lionel Lionel Holland. Yep. The starting five plus uh, Lloyd Neal. So the entire time we were talking, I was trying to think of what Nurkic's number is. And is it 17? It's 27. And we also forgot uh, Larry Steele, number 15. His number is retired as well. So set seven guys from the 77 team. Maybe it's because of my history of this team is very short. But I, I don't identify... In basketball, like the number with the player, I do it in football, but that's just because I've f- rode with the Saints my entire life. But no, I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those those people. So are we getting into the uh, the 2000s Blazers? Is it is it 2000 and uh, Miss Jackson? Are, are we bumping Miss Jackson now in 2000? Watching this game. Sorry, Miss Jackson. The Blazers were for real. Oh, man. They, so we are looking back at game five of the Western Conference semifinals between the Portland Trailblazers and the Utah Jazz. Uh, heading into this game, Portland held a 3 1 advantage. And in game one, they won 94 75. Game two, 103 85. Game three, 103 84. So heading into that fourth game, they had won by double digits handily in three straight games. Utah ekes out an 85 or an 88-85 victory in, in game four. And game five was a lot closer than I think everyone anticipated. I remember this game. I was 15 years old at the time. Watching the game, I still vividly where I was, what part of the the living room I was when I was watching it, who I was talking to on the phone during the the final minutes of the game. And I remember the whole time during this game just being extremely frustrated. The the team was not playing Blazer basketball. They frankly they looked a little they looked a little bored 
they knew they were better than this Utah team. This Utah team was three or four years way past its prime. And they looked like they were just ready to, to take on the Lakers. What's interesting about this game is both Portland and the Lakers played on, on the same on the same day. So Portland took the 5 o'clock time slot. The Lakers, who were playing the Phoenix Suns and had an opportunity to wrap up their series as well, were playing a Game 5 in Los Angeles at the 7.30 time slot on TNT. So uh, where I went to school in Albany, we had a lot of Blazer fans, but also a couple of Laker fans. So we would talk shit to each other throughout the year. I didn't want to go back to school that day. The next day with Portland having not only to go back to Utah for a game six, but to hear my, my, my Laker buddies or, or Laker, you know, schoolmates, you know, talking shit that their team closes out and they're waiting for us, you know, at, at the Staples Center. So your boy was nervous, not only watching the game then, I was nervous watching it now. You ever go back and watch those games and think, how in the fuck did we win this or how, how lucky did we get like you always remember watching those what if games like, oh, we should have won that game. I wish that would have gone right. But I find myself when I watch those games where stuff does go right, thinking, I don't like that. Like that just felt weird. Like I just wanted to win like very easily and handily. Like I know for a fact we're not covering a game the Blazers lose. I know for a fact we're not. But in the last minute of the game, I'm like, how the fuck do they pull this one off? Cause it looked like it should have been Utah's victory. But we're skipping ahead quite a bit. Yeah, let, let's rewind a bit. And honestly, the NBA on NBA, the NBA on NBC theme song is the goat. There, there's no denying that. But early 2000s TNT theme intro, that brought back a ton of memories. I was like, this is the shit right here. Did you know who's calling that game? I wrote it down. Kevin Calabro called the game and. A few things to note. One, he was more excited and animated calling this game than I ever heard him calling a game from his employer, the Portland Trailblazers, this year. Two, he says weird shit. And he did it then and he does it now. He mentioned, oh, I'm certain the fans in Portland were at that George W. Bush rally early, uh, earlier today. One, no, no we weren't. <laughs> Portland is one of the most liberal cities in the entire United States. They don't give a fuck about George W. Bush. And I know he's probably trying to be funny or cute, whatever, but I just noticed that he says weird shit now, and it's kind of interesting to hear that it's not nothing new from him. No, I, I like, no disrespect to him, because I know he listens to the show, but he seems like a classic weirdo. He just has a good voice for what he, what his profession is, but I think he's a classic weirdo. I mean, he has an amazing voice. Like, when he, that's, so when we hired him, I was excited. Um, I still wanted to keep Mike and Mike. I didn't like the way that was handled, but I was like, okay, we're bringing in a big time player. Like this dude has a voice for calling games. You heard it during this game. I mean, it was phenomenal on both ends when the jazz made a play or when, you know, Brian Grant threw down a couple of slams, his voice got animated and he does have one of those just familiar voices that you could hear 10 years later. I honestly, that's Kevin Calabro. I thought that was Joel Myers calling the game for a while. And then I was like, wait, that's Kevin Calabro? He's doing a really good job. He says that he, he he admittedly says some weird shit. He did a great job. Like, I was entertained by that game. Normally, when I watch the Blazers, I'm listening to podcasts or listening to music during the game, and I can just watch it as, like, a basketball fan. But I enjoyed his commentating that game. And what's interesting about this series in really – the Utah Jazz versus Portland Trailblazers rivalry as a whole is Utah could never win in Portland, especially in the playoffs. So I became a fan in 1990, and so I'm only taking it back that far. Over the course of five postseasons, Utah was 0-14 against us. They couldn't beat us in 91, 92, 96, 99, or 2000. In four of those series, we did have home court advantage. But in 96, we were down 0-2 and forced to game five against a team that, that made it to the Western Conference Finals. I don't know if it was just that that magic, because we certainly had a tough time winning in Utah as well. I mean, we got, both we cities have great done. fans. Both cities have great fans, but we closed them out in 92 in Utah. And behind the broad shoulders of Kevin Duckworth, 
we took game four, which gave us a 3-1 lead in 91. Maybe it's just one of those things where it's a house of horrors for them. I, I'm thankful it is for Utah, but this is kind of where my well, we hatred... don't win in Phoenix, so maybe it's just the 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 city or some shit. I don't know. Yeah, but we did close the Suns out in 1990 to go to the Western to go to the NBA Finals. So Guess what? Guess what? I wasn't born then. Oh, <laughs> maybe your mama should have had you a little early so you could watch. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the young God was really uh, giving a shit about basketball when he was negative one <laughs> but either way this these series is these series are what formed my dislike for the jazz the jazz are a top three team that i just do not root for i, I don't give a shit about i do love when they're good because i want to see more matchups like this in the playoffs that's why i was upset when gordon hayward left because i thought you know there was a possibility like blazers jazz playoffs you know it's been too fucking long same with blazers lakers like it's been too long since we've had those matchups in the postseason like i'm tired who's the, of who's the third who's the third so it's lakers jazz hmm it's tough it kind of it just kind of rotates based upon the current climate of the nba for a while it was the nuggets when they had carmelo and jr smith and Kenyon martin um i hate the rockets the rockets might be third it really picked up when dame hit that shot which was fucking awesome and also when they beat us in 09, they stole that home court advantage from us. Never liked the Spurs. So, yeah. And right now it's the Warriors. Cause, yeah, obviously. You know, obviously. I mean, that's just too easy. But, yeah, definitely the Jazz and the Lakers. And with the series pretty much in, in balance for Portland, Scottie Pippen was the one that set the tone. I mean, this was a dude Portland He was aggressive. In. He, they brought him in for moments like this. He was never so. My memories of watching the, this ninety nine two thousand team was that Pippen was more of a calming presence throughout the regular season. He had his moments, but he was mostly in there to distribute, play defense, leadership. We really leaned on Rashid Wallace, Arvita Sabonis down low. Steve Smith was honestly maybe one of our go to weapons on offense, and then what we could get from our bench. You know, we had such a deep team. We just kind of beat teams down with our depth. It was just an onslaught of talent. You know, you've got Detlef Shrimp, Greg Anthony, Bonzi Wells, Stacey Ogman, Jermaine O'Neal, Brian Grant. I mean, just the list went on and on. But in big games, this game five and then game five against the Lakers, the following, the following series, Pippen really came out aggressive and he set the tone. And if it wasn't for him, we easily lose. Oh, absolutely. Um, that game. You talk about setting the tone. He had nine points on, four of seven shooting in, in the first quarter. You know, Portland only scored 19 points in that first quarter. So he had almost half of our half of our production. And then he gave a few dimes. I remember he led in transition and then a jump pass to Damon right in front of the basket. So he was distributing and being really aggressive because he took some shots. He took some threes. I remember he did like an ISO dribble under the legs three times uh, jump shot. I mean, he almost had a triple-double. He had 23 points, nine rebounds, eight assists, three steals, and a block. And you mentioned those dimes were sick. The, the best play of the game was uh, Brian Grant's jumped a post pass, stole it from Carmelo. And there's kind of a scrum, but Scottie Pippen ends up with it. Rasta, as he always did, hustled down the floor. Pippen is on the left side of the wing, kind of pulls it back a bit, sees Brian Grant, a small opening, and just does a one-handed bounce pass right into his chest and he just flushes it down for, you know, the fast break slam, which just erupted the Rose Garden crowd. And that was Pippen in a nutshell. You've got a six eight player with fluid basketball point guard skills feeding the team's most energetic and, and fan favorite. And does this team have the most IQ out of any Blazers team in your memory? With Pip, Steve Smith, Arvidas. <sighs> It's tough. It's tough. I think that what made all three of the eras great was the IQ. And oh, and Sheed is like a basketball mastermind. So they had like numerous dudes that were like top five IQ in their position. I mean, it's tough. I mean, Terry Porter, I think Buck Williams, Clyde Drexler, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth, those guys all were super smart basketball players. I think at times they let the outside 
media impact their play and maybe get into their heads when everyone was saying they're not a half court team. It's also hard to go against Bill Walton, Mo Lucas. I mean, that might be the smartest front court in the history of the league. Yeah, that's why I said in your generation of Blazer fandom. I mean, Blazer fandom, though, goes back to 1970 for me now. Like, okay. I have such an appreciation for those guys, for those teams that prior prior to maybe a couple years ago, I didn't really connect with that team. But now I'm buying all the books I can about those teams. I've got a couple pieces of memorabilia. Whenever, you know, Mitchell and Ness releases something um, they did for the 77, the 40th anniversary night this past year that we uh, hosted the Lakers. You know, I got the book that the Oregonian put out, um, a couple pieces of gear. So I'm really starting to connect back with with that squad, especially since, you know, coming to the realization that this might be the only championship that the team ever wins. So, you know, you got to feel somewhat of, of a bond to them and how they took the city by storm and the city really embraced them. Really, Blazer Mania grew from that team. But going to the IQ aspect of it, this 2000 Blazers team was so fucking smart. I mean, Rasheed Wallace gets a lot of shit for being a loudmouth, but his basketball IQ was off the charts. Absolutely. And, like, there were plays where Rasheed had the matchup in the post, but then he saw Pippen on Jeff Hornacek and got out of the post position, then did the entry pass to Pippen so he could go on the the much bigger mismatch for the Jazz. That shit doesn't happen without a very smart team all around it to see the the blatant mismatches. You want to talk about IQ. Sabonis was, I think, the best passing center of all time. Would drop some ridiculous dimes. He didn't get an opportunity to do too many of those in this game because there's a lot of standing around in the perimeter. But he was so big and burly that he would just sweep that that rolling thunder, the, that hook shot across the middle you know, just drop it in there. Um, he would throw dimes from the three-point line. I mean, because he was a threat to shoot that shot, Biggs had to go out and get him. And he was an extremely smart player. So, yeah, that's what made this team great. They were so smart. They were so skilled. But defense, they, they really put the onus on defense. Uh, they seized a lot of opportunities with, like, when it was a entry pass and they would defend it in a weird way. But it would get the steal, like, Sabonis would flare out to the perimeter, and it would confuse them, and then they would drop it to Olden Polonese, and then Olin would make fuck up and fast break for the Blazers. So they did a lot of crazy, crazy defenses that happened to work, and they just... What were your What were your thoughts on Mike Dunleavy's defensive scheme? It seemed like whatever big was out there, Sabonis, Rasheed Wallace... Brian Grant, preferably anyone not guarding Carmelone. They du- so this was in the area of pre-zone defense. You couldn't get away with the zone defense in this at this time. They sent somebody out at John Stockton. They doubled him. They did not want Stockton to sit back and dissect the defense. What were your thoughts on that strategy? Well, Olin and uh, Greg Ostertag weren't going to kill us. So isn't it sort of like how the Warriors put Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen and let him shoot? I mean, I, I think that that was a smart thing to do. It confuses Stockton a little bit more because he has to think it isn't all natural where he can just dissect it. He has to actually think, hey, this big this big man is running towards me. I have to get around this and then try and initiate the offense. So I, I like the, 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 the And Stockton move. was held completely in check. Six points, nine assists, three turnovers, two of seven shooting, um, 0 of two from downtown. In fact, Utah was just stifled all series by Portland's defense, only averaging 82.2 points per game and never even coming close to cracking 100 points. I don't even think they cracked. They may have cracked 90 once, but they just could not score the basketball and Portland suffocated them. Um, you mentioned Greg Ostertag and this really caught my eye. Did he caught play? My ear. Excuse me. No, he didn't play. The announcer said he hadn't played the past two games. Sloan elected to go with Oldham Polonies. Jerry Sloan, quote, Oster, Greg's not, not a guy we can, can count on, count on in big games. Sorry, my handwriting was abysmal taking these notes. So Greg's not a guy we can count on in big games. So this is obviously pre-social media, just when internet fan message boards were coming to life. I don't think that comment gets made today. I mean, that would, that would blow that would blow up on Twitter in an instant. They talked about how that's kind of strange. 
that a guy getting paid this much wouldn't play. So, I mean, there was a lot of shade thrown in that on that uh that little segment of the game. I mean, that's a little bit more than shade. I think that's downright embarrassing your player. I think there's certain things you can say to the media. I, I think that crosses the line. Yeah. And Obvious, what? and it's not helping his confidence any. I don't know of any people that would be like, yeah, I'm really going to go bust my ass for this guy because he says he can't count on me in big games. I would give him the double middle finger and be like, peace out. I'm going to cash my check and I'll just sit on the bench. Like, mm. fuck you. Yeah, that's, that's, that was a very strange comment. But moving along from Ostertag, why do you think the Blazers were able to really handle the Jazz through three games? They did struggle, but they pulled it out. How were they able to just defeat this Jazz team? A team that won. Um, they were the two seed. They were the two, they were the three seed. Oh, shit. No, they were the two because they won the division. We were the three. We had a better record. I, th- I believe they won 55 games. So Portland won 59 that year. How was Portland able to manhandle a team that won 55 games so easily? I think it's IQ, depth, and then them just busting their ass on defense. Because offensively, there was a lot of missed shots, a lot of mishandles in the lane, a lot of missed layups. They just busted their ass on defense and then outsmarted them. And Scottie Pippen had some humongous balls to take a a three-pointer with like seven seconds left on the shot clock when everyone was thinking it was going to Sheed, but Pippen just launched a three because Brian Russell jumped too early and Scotty had space. So it was, but I mean, like it's all IQ there. I think they're just smarter and wanted to get that victory. Eventually. I think a couple reasons they were able to do it. One, they did it last year with a weaker team. I think obviously the additions of Detlef Schrempf, uh, Scotty Pippen and Steve Smith really elevated the team, but the ninety the ninety nine team was able to go into Utah in Game Two, steal back home court advantage, and they beat them in six in a hard hard fought series. The other there's a couple other reasons, but the other one, it just speaks to the brilliance of Carl Malone that he was able to kind of put that team on his shoulders for fifty five wins. I mean, looking at that roster, Stockton is nowhere near the player he was. Jeff Hornacek good outside shooter but still not the all-star caliber player he was when he was with phoenix and this uh, is in today's era where three-point shooting is so important i mean you've got olden Paulney's hands of a fucking stone byron russell maybe the most inconsistent player of that era for the jazz i mean howard isley quincy lewis armin gilliam jock vaughn scott pageant you know a couple of nice role players but but nothing that i would ever really want to rely on i mean you look at, at the bench through five or through the through four games, Portland had a 33 to 21 advantage on the bench. Portland's players played an average of 87 bench minutes compared to Utah 75. In that game five, it was even more apparent that the Blazer bench was relied upon more. They were more fresh, so they played 70 minutes. Utah only played 45. I know Portland only got 13 points from their bench. Utah only got 10. So it wasn't the production that gave Portland that game five win. It was their ability to keep their guys fresh. And lastly, I think it really went with the matchups. Utah had absolutely no answer for Steve Smith on the block. It was J.R. Ryder the year before against Jeff Hornacek, and it was Steve Smith this year. When you posted him on the block, and this is something I wish, if if you're a 6'5", 6'7", 2 guard out there, get your ass to the gym Watch some tape of Steve Smith, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, those guys with their back to the basket and dominate. Guards do not know how to defend in the post like they used to. Absolutely. And if you're able to muscle them in the post, draw a double team, kick it out to all of these amazing shooters in today's NBA, it's like having a mini post player on your team from the guard position. And then you also go to Rasheed Wallace, who was extremely quiet. Yeah, he got hurt, though. In this game. This guy hurt his quad. Uh, he was five of nine for 11 points, one rebound. I mean, one rebound. He did have three blocks and two steals and he really only came alive for, um, he hit a jumper to cut the lead down to two at, at 79, 77. But 
as good as Carl Malone was, the length of Rasheed Wallace, and we saw it in the next series against Robert Urich, he was the reason Portland was so difficult to defend, and he was a good passer out of the post. So Portland just had so many different matchups they were able to go to and really exploit, and that's why I think they were able to take that 4-1. Also, they, they were a team at the time seen as a team on the rise. Although they were a veteran team, they still had, I mean, Rashid was still young, Brian Grant was still young, Bonzi was just coming into his own. Jermaine uh, O'Neal. Jermaine O'Neal. So they were kind of seen as a team on the rise that would contend for a while. And Utah, while dominating the 90s in the Western Conference, being a force and a factor year in and year out, they were just about getting ready to ride off into that sunset. I mean, Carl Malone was a fucking machine, though. He still, he was sick that game, or at least that's what he told the media. And he was out-hustling dudes eight years his junior. He was still a very good player, even though he was old as dirt. Well, yeah, I think in his, what, 20-year career, he missed less than 10 games total. Like some absurd stat like that. That's a reason why I'm not so quick to hail Tim Duncan as the the greatest power forward of all time. I know he has, has the rings, but he also had Ginobili, Parker, Kawhi. David Robinson. You know, David Robinson, <laughs> Greg Popovich. That Spurs whole culture. And don't get me wrong, Jerry Sloan is a Hall of Fame coach. John Stockton is a Hall of Fame player, but he didn't have everything that Duncan had. Um, Duncan also never had to go through Michael Jordan. So I, I think it is more of a debate than people are leading on to. Um, another thing while watching this game, and it got me searching the internet, was I was going back through kind of like my Rolodex of, of memories of what the matchups were, one through eight in the Western Conference. I, I knew Portland handled Minnesota the series prior in four games. Um, Utah had to actually go to five games against the, the seven seed Supersonics. Um, and Phoenix, who was playing the, the Lakers, the Lakers in the first round got pushed to a fifth and deciding game by the Kings. But it was that four or five series, the, the Suns and the Spurs, which I don't have any recollection of. And I was going back through basketball reference. I was looking at the, the records. They were pretty similar. I was wondering how in the hell did the Suns beat the defending champion Spurs? It ha- what happened was Tim Duncan ruptured his Achilles or no, he had meniscus. He had meniscus floating kind of like in his knee. He begged to come back for the playoffs. I think he got hurt maybe a week before the, the season ended. And Popovich doing the smart first thing said, said, no, like you're a franchise guy. So Duncan missed those playoffs. Um, it would have been interesting to see if the Spurs were able to beat the Lakers um, or at least give them some resemblance of a fight. I'm not certain they would have because when they played, um, I think the the next year, the year after, the Lakers just ran right through them. I mean, Shaq was just that good, and Portland was the, I still think, the only team that gave them a fight because of all of the bigs we could send at him. Yeah, different uh, ways to throw our bigs at Shaq. So it would have been interesting with Robinson and Duncan, though. My question to you was, what was the finishing five for that season? Because you, you you were conscious and you knew what the fuck was up. Was it Sabas at five or was it Brian Grant and Sheed at the four and the five to end games? It was always Sheed, but it depended on matchup. I mean, you're going to have Savonis against Shaq, but if you can get away with keeping Savonis on the bench and resting him, you went with Brian Grant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in a lot of those clutch moments where you ha- we had to get a rebound it was grant in because he's probably more athletic and could jump up to get those so i was curious if if he was part of the finishing five or was it sabas because you know i mean a lot of the times like that left shrimp would play uh with pippen and steve smith you know because pippen could play the point so if damon was having a bad game damon could you know you know rest up on, on the sidelines but for the most part, it was the starting five, and you would sub out either Sabas for Brian Grant. So, the, the, the main thing that came through my mind watching this game is, how do you think this team would do if it was in the 2017 realm of basketball? It's so tough. Because three-point were... shooting is so much more important than it was in 2000. I mean, I think their IQ and defense would have got them, but I don't know... 
how good they would have been if they were against this Warriors team or stuff like that. How do you think they would have done in this era of basketball? I mean, I still think they would be a contender. I mean, just because of how depth, how deep they were. I think they would be a Memphis on steroids, to be honest with you. There, I mean, there would just be no answer for our guys down low. Now, we would have to make up for it on defense, but defense is something this team's got in their bag. There's a lot of versatile defenders. Um, we have also a lot of matchup problems. So you can say, yeah, you know, Draymond at the five would give Sabonis fits. Okay, we probably wouldn't want Sabonis in there, but Brian Grant would play great defense on Draymond. Rasheed Wallace would be the best post defender in the league. Um, and then you've got guys like Bonzi Wells and Steve Smith who would just go to work on the block. Offensively is kind of where I would be a little concerned with this Blazer team, and especially watching this game five. They had a tendency to go completely isolation and stand and watch. They didn't run a single pick and roll out in the goal game. Yeah. <laughs> it was a uh... There's a lot of dribble penetration and then put, throw it into the big or one of our wings and see if we could take advantage of the post. So I would have liked to have seen more more ball movement, player movement. That could have just been a case-by-case basis. I mean, what they did worked almost to a team, and they got to a seventh game against the Lakers in the fourth quarter where you want to be in a great position. The cookie didn't crumble our way. So it's tough to say that this team wouldn't succeed in 2017 after nearly dethroning one of the, the most dominant teams in recent memory. But it would have been interesting to see. I think Memphis on steroids is probably the best comparison, and the Memphis Grizzlies made it to the conference finals a few years ago. I mean, I don't think it would be out of the realm of Portland to... I mean, I would put this Blazers team easily at the second best in the West. Yeah, no, I don't think we could tip we could tip the scales on the Warriors, but I don't I don't see a team that has the players that we do that we could just throw at them and throw at them in different schemes and different. And I mean, like, just think, there's more technology now, so players would like know their bodies well. There'd be less wear and tear. It would be really fun to watch this Blazer team defend the Warriors, though. Steve Smith was an underrated defender. Pippen obviously could play point guard and give Steph Curry a lot of fits. Both Brian Grant and Rasheed Wallace could do work against uh, Draymond. Uh, Stacey Ogman, and we had him off the bench. He's not going to lock down KD, but he's a guy who you can just bring in to play strictly defense. Um, it would be a clash of, of styles, and I think it would, be, it, it would be fun to watch because the Warriors team currently, their kryptonite is interior defense and giving up points in the paint that's where we thrive so it would be almost like strength versus strength like who wins out the warriors perimeter offense versus portland's you know perimeter or uh interior interior offense what were you thinking when pippen launched that three so humongous balls because rashid was posted up. I thought it was going to there. And then as he shot, I was like, what the fuck? Oh, it went in. I was not expecting it. That was, I think, like the biggest How no, did no, it... no, yes shot. <laughs> How I did young Dustin handle that? <laughs> Just like I said, it was no, no, yes. <laughs> like, I was like, what do you do? Like, Pivot's not known as a three-point No, shooter. he's not a shit three-point guy. And it looked like he hesitated too. Usually when you hesitate, that shit doesn't go in. <laughs> Um, but what I didn't know, so I obviously remember that shot. I didn't remember the Utah Jazz had two other chances to win the game. Yeah. Oh, I thought, I, I, I was like, how the fuck did Dustin pick this game? We're, we obviously lose at the last second. So Stockton goes into traffic and magically just delivers the ball right up to Byron Russell with three seconds left. He gets fouled. He misses the first one. He short arms. up by one. By the We're way. by one. He misses the first one, short arms it, and as soon as he did that, you knew he was going to miss the second one because one, if you miss the, if you short arm it, you know you're feeling the pressure. He starts pointing, He's pointing to the at the fans and shit. That the fans are doing something wrong. You know, Pippen's going over to him, just talking in his ear. Rashid's talking to him. I mean, they're just really the, trying to. The, get the to people him. on the court were so hyped that he missed. And 
Russell, instead of going back collecting himself, he's animated. He's, you know, something's going on. He takes that neck shot, and it's it's worse. It's not even close. So they foul Pippen. It's like 1.8 seconds left. He only hits one. one. <laughs> so we're up two. Utah has the ball at half court. Byron Russell kind of stumbles and loses his balance and throws his up an ill-advised three. Rashid Wallace contests it. And there's a little bit of contact. I don't think it's it was a foul because of how out of control Russell was. But it was still too close for comfort. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, shit. Is that another foul? That was that that game fucked with my emotions because I I knew the result. I knew we weren't going to talk about a loss. But just a confluence of events that fucked the jazz up. I mean, Pippen hitting the hezzy three pointer, Russell missing two free throws, and then fucking up at the very end. I mean, so. That game fucked with my emotions. Has there been a player... Like, who is the modern-day Byron Russell? Like, who is a guy who played at a pretty good level, but when the moment came, just didn't arise? I mean, he's he's remembered most for being on the opposing end of Michael Jordan's final shot as a Chicago Bull. I mean, he's probably not as known for what happened in this game, but it almost seems like like, was this a microcosm of his entire career? Like, having a pretty solid game, he, he had 18 points. Yeah, he had 8 points in, like, 3 possessions. Yeah, and he was 2 of 2 at the line. I believe he shot, like, 78% from the season and 70% in the playoffs at the strike. He, he had uh, 6 boards, uh, 3 assists, 3 steals. So he, he was their second leading scorer and a player who really kept them at that 6-8 to eight point lead all game. But he just kind of, I mean, I hate to say he, he choked. I, I hate saying this. Is it Nick? Is he? Is he like? I mean, Nick Anderson's not modern day, but is Nick yeah. Anderson kind of the same player? Well, that was player? who I was gonna say. The '95 Finals when he he had he missed four straight free throws. He never recovered from that. Like I don't think Byron Russell really ever recovered from from Jordan. I think that it's in his head, and when I think talented players that are in his head, the person that comes to mind is Drew Holiday for me. I've never seen a t- player so physically talented just be in his head for an entire, like, if he misses one free throw, he misses for a month. So that's the type of player that I think when I think of a guy that's in his head, because he's he's very, he's a talented guy, but I think the way he plays basketball, the way his coaches have talked to him about what his role is, has fucked his head up. Any last words on this game, Sage? It was a very exciting game, very sloppy, but it came out in a way that favors the team that we're talking about, so I was very happy with it. One thing I noted was how fucking ugly the Jazz jerseys were. Yeah, the the, the, the mountain. The mountain with, and it was a black jersey and it had like a copper trim. Not Not the fly guy etiquette look. I mean, the current jerseys they have now with the Jazz Note, those those are pretty crisp. Um, I definitely approve of those. Uh, but I just wasn't feeling the, those Jazz jerseys. But I don't know what I was going to say. I think I lost it. <laughs> who do you think was not the best? Who was the most important player on that 2000 Blazers team? For this game in general or? No, the team. Probably Rashid. But, I mean, in this game, it was all Scottie Pippen. Yeah, I think you, you could argue it's Rashid for his skill, Pippen for his leadership. It'd be tough. I, I could see either answer being correct. And, I mean, Pippen, shout Pippen out really to... Kept, kept us afloat. And Steve Smith contributed in a lot of ways, too. I know he well, wasn't the star. He was an Olympian. He was an Olympian this, that summer. Yeah. I mean... The way he passed from the post to cutting to cutters was pretty amazing. You don't see that in uh, this generation's basketball from a, 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 a two. I mean that 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 breed of two guard is gone by the wayside, and it's it's a shame because they were so good. Well, just was- think, man that 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 late, elongated Kobe's career a few years because that was all he did. Sure, shit did the same to MJ. Yeah, so. I mean, and it's such a mismatch because you're not expecting your two guard to be able to guard a guy just backing you down like it's nothing. 
And in small samples, Mo Harkless has been good at that, especially when teams try to hide a smaller defender on him. I remember Portland going right at James Harden with Wesley Matthews, making him defend. So you get these really offensive-minded two guards, uh, like a Dwayne Wade, like a James Harden, or a Clay Thompson. Make them work on defense. And yes, running them off of screens is very effective, but also make them take that physical, just kind of like that that pounding of, of, of the back against their chest. Like in doing that for, you know, what, 10, 12 possessions a night. Like that, to play post defense is physically exhausting. Even doing it in, you know, rec league. Like you're taking that, that pounding and you're trying to hold your ground. You're trying to play firm defense without fouling. It really wears you out. I mean, it's mentally and physically taxing. So my question is, more coaches need to utilize this. I mean, we've seen it work even with players with not made necessarily as refined post skills as Smitty. But I mean, I would love to see that in Portland's offense next year. I know we don't really have the. We don't have a guy to do that. We don't. Alan Crabb would never be that guy, and CJ just doesn't have the. He's too little. You you have to have a beefy two guard like Steve Smith, like a Wesley. But I think it it, it is something Mo Harkless could could learn and start to manipulate um, or emulate, excuse me, um, over the course of this this next next season or two. You know, I think we are about at that stopping point, Sage. Uh, it's about ten fifty eight here on a Tuesday evening. Uh, we've given you all we've got. We will be back again shortly with our our Northwest preview, probably our Western Conference preview, um, looking ahead to the Blazers, especially with the season being three weeks away. Uh, be on the lookout. This podcast will release uh, on Wednesday. And Thursday. Throwback Thursday. Thursday. This is the Throwback Thursday. It'll release on Thursday. Sage and I are doing a guest appearance on uh, Tara's podcast for Blazers Edge on Wednesday, previewing the Northwest Division. So give that podcast to listen when it drops um if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more hear our previous episodes or be notified when the latest episode drops uh subscribe to us on itunes give us that five star review if you like you know what you're hearing we're also available on stitcher soundcloud and google play at holy backboard pdx and as always you can find us at holy backboard on facebook twitter and instagram my friend, any final words? Basketball is almost back. Two weeks from now, we'll be talking about media day and all. I'm excited, man. I cannot wait for real basketball to start. You can, uh, I got a few podcasts coming out soon. I know I've been saying this for months, but a lot of shit has been on my plate. I'm focusing on this. So. Get ready for that. It's going to be dope. There's going to be a lot of content coming your way pretty soon. Last minute hot take. Carmelo Anthony will be a Portland Trailblazer before the calendar hits 2018. For I've got a feeling. I've had a feeling ever since the summer that it was going to go probably into September, maybe October. But it feels like a late training camp trade, just like Scottie Pippen. I feel like he's going to budge. It is going to come to the conclusion that Houston doesn't have what the Knicks want. And he's gonna he's warming up to the idea of playing with Damon CJ. It's just a gut instinct, but I think it happens. Where you may be, this is Bill Shinley. Good night, everybody. Let's go! Let's go.